Welcome to the Living Shelter Podcast, where we explore ways to create healthy, energy-efficient, and joyful places to live. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, a Pacific Northwest native and an architect with over 30 years experience designing with a focus on sustainable options. Our goal at Living Shelter is to help you expand your toolkit so you can help build a resilient future that includes comfortable and sustainable places for all of us to live. Our guests share their years of experience in one or more of the many facets of the green and natural building industries, with topics from material choices for health and wellness to energy efficiency and regenerative site design, and some big-picture ideas from thought leaders we think you'll find inspiring. In this episode of Living Shelter, we're going to dive into water as a resource and as a means of healing on multiple levels. In our maritime Pacific Northwest, it can be easy to believe we have plenty of water and that conservation is not that important. But water needs filtration between its use or interaction with our infrastructure, and entering the water table or waterway. We also have lots of buildings, roads, and other impervious surfaces that affect the condition and availability of clean water for people and marine life. Enter Site Story, a local service organization whose work intersects community initiatives, engagement, conservation, green building, culture, and interpretive education. They believe all these elements are foundational to revealing our stories in place. They are Ellen Southard and Maren Bjork, and join us here today to talk about some of their exciting projects and initiatives. Welcome, Ellen and Maren. Thanks, Terry. It's great to be here. Great to be here. So... One of the things I love about Site Story is that you are working in placemaking and storytelling. The fact that story is part of your name kind of reveals that. Explain a little bit about what is what is placemaking. I think placemaking is really how you can define the individual character of a neighborhood or community. You mentioned culture, and that's something we really focus on. We want to embrace cultural history and cultural diversity within our communities. Um, And it's an intersection with the built environment and nature. And I want to also, Marin is an expert at placemaking as a landscape architect, so I want to give her a chance to answer that question, too. Hmm. And people are definitely an important part of placemaking. You bring them together, help them find a way to describe the place that they want to be building, and you find ways to help them build it. And there's just so many ways to go about that. But especially when we have big problems to solve, I think placemaking is a great tool for bringing people together educating, learning together, and then finding new solutions together that will make a higher quality of life for all of us. Yeah, I think a lot of our work is is about is is around community planning. It's also about human ecology. It's 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 where humans 
impact nature and where they come together to solve nature's problems and to protect and recover natural systems. And I think that's a lot of how we approach the philosophy of our work and how we engage communities too is reminding them that even in the most urbanized environment, you're part of nature and there's a way to bring nature back into urbanized places. How do you engage communities? What are some of the uh, tactics or methods that you use to get community and people in a community to respond to ideas about changes in their community and how to make a personal contribution to that? I think at, at the forefront of our work is we want everyone's voices to feel valued And so we're a very encouraging, and I think we're pretty accessible. And Marn and I, we have a lot of fun at work, and we want to make sure that when people are talking about their communities and they're coming together to to look at projects, like right now we're working on um, the growth management plan, the comprehensive plan with the city of Sammamish, and we've put together some exercises that... Uh, are focused on empowering people's voices and and having them feel like they're part of that they're at the seat of decision making in terms of how to make investments. Uh, we created a, a game called Sammy Bucks, which is based <laughs> on Sammamish dollars okay. uh, and how they could invest those dollars. <laughs> um, we encourage people to tell stories and to tell their story. So that's an important part of it. I'd say the other really important part of it is to meet people where they are. Yeah. So we go to the churches. We go to the community centers. The day – I mean, we had a great interaction on the Sammamish Project for Valentine's Day where a lot of the – Sammamish Boys and Girls Club made Valentine's telling the city what they like about the city. Oh, how sweet. So that youth (laughs) engagement is really important. We focus on multi-generational engagement Mm -hmm. as well as making sure that we're bringing diverse people to the table who might not always be heard. Yeah, I would say that that was definitely a fun activity. And initially, it might be a lot of cold calling as people take it takes a little bit for them to get to know you and why you're calling and kind of go, oh, okay, you're calling about that again. Yeah, we want to do something. And that was completely the experience we had with the Boys and Girls Club. It took a little while to get through because they're very busy. And and once we made connection and they were throwing out lots of ideas and I think they even brought treats to the city staff, didn't they? Yeah, they made chocolate-covered strawberries and um, Ooh, like yeah. cupcakes and things like that to thank the staff for inviting their opinions. So that was a beautiful, rewarding, and it was a gratifying exchange. I yeah. love that. I, I think that children's voices are not always heard outside the home or you know the school, and the fact that you've invited them to participate. Just, I mean, it made them feel good to be included and be involved and feel like they're making a difference. And it starts an expectation, I think, for an individual that is invited to speak and then they expect to, to have their voice heard. And so then as they grow and they'll be looking to include others. And I think that that spirit of generosity, the inclusion is we're going to get a lot farther if we can find more and more ways to do that together. 
And we follow up with tools, too. We want to make sure that those neighborhoods know that they've been heard. So sometimes it might be an infographic with survey results. Um, In the case of the city of Sammamish, we've been working on blogs after there's events, um, and we share what what the community opinion was and the numbers of people that showed up and who showed up. So transparency is at the core, too, is is letting people know that, yes, they were heard and, and here's who we heard from. Mm-hmm. And that is the beauty of websites today. There is such a quick turnaround with information that we can get that uploaded and people can see evidence of the impact. Right. Do you find that there's a different level of engagement with different communities, say, City of Sammamish versus, let's say, in the Duwamish? Because I know you're doing some work there that we'll talk about here in a minute. Well, in the Duwamish, first of all, it's just been an extraordinary opportunity. We focused on, in the Duwamish, we focused on meeting with community groups who had already built trust in in their neighborhoods. And also it was extremely important that we had multilingual outreach and that we, you know, that we had language capacity. Mm. And so it was very important to partner with the Duwamish um, River Community Coalition and also the Duwamish Valley Youth Corps. And in the case of the Duwamish, we shared a lot of information about what the challenges were there. And again, we we actually created tours for the Duwamish Valley Youth Corps so they could see some of the stormwater solutions that were in other parts of the city so they could start to imagine um, how we could bring certain solutions to them. Uh, and for folks who might be listening in, what's happened in the Duwamish is is the largest Superfund site in America. Right. That was something I yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that we talked about is I don't think people realize that right here in super green progressive Seattle, we have the largest Superfund site, cleanup site in the country. In the country, yes. It's, it's highly affected by industrial uses and port uses and, in fact, has the lowest or I guess it's the highest mortality rate, lowest longevity. Uh, I live in Fremont, and folks in the Duwamish will have, by actuarial standards, probably have 11 to 13 years less of a lifespan than people who live in the Fremont neighborhood. So it was really important to us that we be able to participate in social and environmental equity there. And admittedly, had met quite a few people from the Duwamish and were inspired to work with them. Um, and we we specifically wrote a grant with Salmon Safe and Boeing so that we could help support that community. It was just, it was an amazing opportunity. And mm-hmm. the youth just energized us. Yeah, they, they were fantastic to go on the tour with. Number one, to walk through South Park and to kind of see what had been working on there right next to the bridge and the the bioswale that comes down and then, of course, neglect of permeable paving. And so what does that look like? And, you know, like, oh, we can start to be a detective in our own communities to go, okay, what's going on here and what needs to happen? And so... That was an interesting conversation with them as we walked through there and then moving on up to Fremont and looking at 
our Cadillac version of bioswales. <laughs> <laughs> they're so beautiful and they're lovely. I mean, they're a great example. And they do a lot of their workhorses. But then when we got to the side next to Weber Thompson um, Watershed Building, how fascinated they were by the concept of the living building. And so there were opportunities left and right to talk about different sustainability pieces. But getting to travel and getting to talk about place, it opens new doors that plant seeds for later. So I'd be really excited to see if we ever get to meet any of these kids again and find out, you know, what they thought about it from their perspective over time. Right. I was just thinking to be able to track these these young people, say, in 10 years, find out where they are, where they've decided their career path is going to take them. And feeling that gratification of learning that you've made a difference in somebody's life and the ripple effect of what that difference can be. You've mentioned a couple of different things here that I want to come back around to, but I, I want to go back for a minute to the Duwamish mm -hmm. and just help people understand what's been going on there and why this work is so important there. The fact that it's a super fun site, of course, means that it's highly degraded on an environmental front. And I'm guessing that's a lot of pollution from diesel, from shipping, and industry in the area. What else has been affecting that? Well, there's legacy pollution from all the industrial manufacturing there and different, you know, different land uses uh, and land use over time where there were different requirements from environmental performance perspective. I mean, a lot of that legacy pollution predates the Clean Water Act. Of course. So you have uh, legacy pollution in the soils, but then you also, um, because it's a major part of port operations um, and close to the airport and close to Boeing, you have carbon issues in terms of air quality, and that's probably the biggest impact of all on human health there is the air quality. Okay. But the other thing is, is that the the carbon doesn't just end up in people's lungs. It ends up on the ground. And when we have heavy rainstorms, mm -hmm. that carbon gets released into the waterway, into the Duwamish waterway, which is also a salmon-bearing river. It's important to the Duwamish tribe. And there's also a large number of different cultural identity groups there that fish as part of their diet. And so, you know, you're, you're not just worried about what's happening on the ground or in the water, but you're ha you're worried about what's ha and what's happening in people's lungs. But then we have to have concerns about how much fish can people eat. And when yeah. you are from an underserved population and you live below the average income, you might actually really depend on that fish um, for your diet and to right. feed your family. And you have the 
fishing uh, industry of the Duwamish tribe. And so all of that, there's an interconnectedness there, there yeah. that you can't there's avoid. There's a whole web of life that's and, happening there. Yes. And then when we had the interruption for several years of the West Seattle Bridge, which is a major uh, transportation corridor to get there, you had more and more vehicles in, in, in less highway, and some of which were... I mean, you could see trucks lined up for hours with their engines running. And, I mean, you put all this together where you've got these traffic jams with vehicles and big trucks, and you've got carbon in the air. So it's, it's a lot. I never thought about how air quality might affect water quality. That's an aha moment for me. And I know the Duwamish tribe is there and the fisheries have been greatly affected by the pollution, but I, I hadn't connected the air with the water. Well, and then it's it, you take that a next step in that ocean acidification is ex, is accelerated in colder temperatures, and the Puget Sound is a very cold body of water. I mean, typically its highest temperature is 58 degrees. And so ocean acidification accelerates in colder water and the Duwamish feeds into the Puget Sound. So that has that has an impact on more fish than just what's running up the Duwamish because then that pollution is spread throughout Puget Sound and it impacts a wide variety of marine habitat and shorelines. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot to it's absorb. It's a big complex a issue. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the flood, the perfect storm situation we just had back in December. Right. The king tide. The king tide with um, copious amounts of rain and the flooding that hit South Park. And when you have soils that have been best not to be disturbed, basically labeled for them. All that bubbling up yes. of things that yes. should have been left undisturbed. So uh, there are a lot there are a lot of issues that we're still learning a lot about and but especially in climate resilience and thinking about our bigger storm events that are happening during a winter. We have a lot to think about yes. with how we plan our landscapes and how we resolve stormwater issues. Are there opportunities to be cleaning this water as it moves from our parcels out to water bodies? And what are the best strategies for that and where? You're listening to the Living Shelter Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, and I'm talking with Ellen Southard and Maren Bjork, of Sight Story about the confluence of water and social justice. So you mentioned the South Park Bridge and you mentioned Fremont and the work that you've been doing in Fremont, the Green Bridges Project. I want to spend a little time there. What exactly is the Green Bridges Project and how is it making a difference? Yeah, the Green Bridges Project is a very unique situation where private landowners, uh, developers were willing to take, they were motivated by salmon recovery in Puget Sound and were aware of some of the science around um, stormwater impacting uh, salmon. So this work occurred 
on the Aurora Bridge in Fremont uh, at 34th and Troll and then down below uh, adjacent to uh, the Lake Washington Ship Canal uh, at the end of Troll Avenue. And basically uh, a a number of us, um, KPFF, Weber Thompson, uh, Salmon Safe, and the COU LLC, Stephen Gray and Associates, came together to do the first of its kind project of taking polluted stormwater off of bridges and moving it through bioswales before it's released into the Lake Washington Ship Canal. And part of the research that's been done has been uh, that when coho salmon, who are the most vulnerable of the species in the Lake Washington Ship Canal, were exposed to that polluted stormwater, they typically die within two hours of that exposure. And uh, the Salmon Safe team, of which I was part of, we did extensive water testing, and we discovered um, that there was a number of petroleum products, zinc, copper, that sort of thing, but there was also a chemical called 6-PPD-quinone, which we now know is um, from tire dust. Oh, man. wherever tires are, you're going to find 6-PPD-quinone, and that is probably the most lethal to marine habitat that is in that stormwater. And that... You're going to find in stormwater coming off of every roadway in the world because every tire manufacturer uses that chemical to preserve the rubber. I knew that tire dust was an issue. I didn't realize that it was a water quality issue. Yes. Yeah, it's a big water quality issue. And there's lots of scientists in our region studying it, Mm -hmm. like Washington State University and NOAA, and they are looking at the research that we did. But yes, that was a big factor. Um, And there was a lot of other factors in terms of permitting and creating public benefit on private land and how, you know, how do you permit a project where you had a wide variety of government agencies and create new policies. And uh, it's really enlightened people in the Northwest. And now we've got more and more neighborhoods asking for these types of projects. Oh, that's so cool. Maren, did you want to talk about the soils and the importance of the soil and the bioswale? I was just going to ask, what what exactly is a bioswale? I think people have heard the term. You know, our listeners may not know exactly what it is. Similar to a rain garden, but in a larger application, I'm guessing, but I'd love to get your expert explanation. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty much it. And so bioswales are a a tool we can use in the landscape to slow down water, detain it for a little while and let it slowly infiltrate either into the ground if the soils are appropriate or move on through the landscape eventually to another point. Um, where it would be eventually either put into the sewer, connected, tied into the sewer, or actually deposited into a water body. Along the way, if that swale, the the depression, is vegetated, then the soils, when they're alive, are doing work on the microbial level. The plants can do work themselves, so phytoremediation as well. Um, And vegetated swales... And healthy soils are some of the best things we can do for removing pollutants out of stormwater runoff as it moves through. Plants can do a very mechanical job of just stopping debris. Mm. So 
helping to filter out silt. As some of those plants can be selected for take uptake of metals, and so then there can be longer um, term roles that peop- that we as managers of these bioswales will have to take in order to manage for those plants' health and for the bioswale health. So they w- might have to uptake them and replant them. Okay, or that's what I just, was wondering. And it's it's a it's not my realm. Oh, okay. People who focus on. Um, but but it is it is possible. So you pull in the right scientists and the right um, evaluations to be able to monitor those things. But from Dr. Jen McIntyre, who did a lot of the work that early, early on told us about the coho and the six PPDQ, soil say, soil and sand can do so much work for us. I think they all they did was run stormwater through the soil mm-hmm. and then exposed the coho to it and the coho survived. So like that simple action of moving stormwater, polluted stormwater through soil can actually clean it enough that we're not killing the fish immediately. So when we stop and think about what soil is, it's living, we, we, it's so easy to walk by soil and not really understand what's going on. And again, I'm not a soil scientist, but I think the biggest thing that I take away is that we need to feed our soils. We need to... Realize that they're alive. We need to keep thinking about how to keep them at their healthiest state because they do so much work for us. They are one of the biggest places to sink carbon. They are healthier soils will actually keep moisture in the in the ground and so help our plants to better survive a dry summer. Mm-hmm. Healthier soils and biodiverse planting groups can actually help one another thrive. And just it just they keep on giving. So as we look for little simple things we can all do, grow your soil. Building your soil. Yeah. With organic so, amendments. Like, organic material. I mean, arborist chips is one of the simplest things we can all be doing to build our soil if we don't have a, a direct plan. But just keep putting arborist chips and mulch on top of our soil. And that just... Those break down over time, and in the meantime, they hold the moisture in and keep the weeds down. And I happen to be on the no-till side. There are a lot of people who don't necessarily prescribe to that, but the mycorrhizal relationship of in the soil as well is, cr- I think, critical to helping to continue to build that soil as well. So mm-hmm. anything we can do to minimize our disturbance of the soil and let those little critters in there do their job and keep eat, giving them fuel, then we're going to get better and better, healthier soils that are going to serve us over time as well as all the plants over time. Yeah, that's a great point. So if you have a bioswale or you have a rain garden, you don't really want to walk on it. You want to... You want to keep from stomping and compacting the yeah, soil. Yeah, you want to keep it loose and able to absorb. And yeah, and bioswales and and rain gardens are considered green stormwater infrastructure. So it's really replicating nature and nature's natural systems to counter the built environment and the disturbance of land. Mm-hmm. I want to loop back to salmon. You mentioned the coho, and you mentioned Salmon Safe, and I know a little bit about Salmon Safe. I'm not sure how much our listeners know. What is Salmon Safe, and how long has it been working for us in place here in the 
in the Salish Sea area, as I like to call Puget Sound. (laughs) So Salmon Safe has been around about 20 years. I got involved in 2007. It's an eco-label. And it's an eco-label that applies to land practices. Mm. So it applies to farming and viticulture. It applies to urban development and campuses. It's basically an eco-label that's based on land use, It's and its criteria is uh, focused on the biological needs of the Pacific Northwest salmon. It was founded in Portland. And so, you know, one of the important things is... And it's an eco-label. Some people might know about Built Green or LEED or the Living Building Challenge in terms of um, ratings for buildings. Mm -hmm. This is based on sites, and it's based on using healthy materials. It's also based on water conservation and preserving water for salmon. Uh, It's based, again, on those natural systems. So Salmon Safe encourages green stormwater infrastructure. Uh, It encourages using native plants, drought-tolerant plants. Uh, And then it's all about operations and maintenance and how you maintain the land over time. Mm. It's pretty unique in the sense that it is tied to food systems as well as the built environment and urban land use. So let's say you you I mean if you're if you want to be part of problem solving, one of the things you can do is buy salmon safe certified food, salmon safe certified wine and beer, or you could salmon safe certify your urban site. Like for instance, uh, Vulcan Development, which is one of the larger, more eco-friendly developers in the Pacific Northwest, has done about twenty projects with Salmon Safe because they really care about marine habitat. Uh-huh. It's also a science-based system. So they have scientists on staff or, you know, part of their team, um, salmon biologists, landscape architects. Um, they have a specialist that understands building materials. So for instance, you know, one of the more popular building products right now for commercial use is zinc cladding. Well, zinc is detrimental to the health of marine habitat. Um, so they look at what is on the outside of the building. That is kind of where they really closely intersect with the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they they teach contractors how to manage their sites for salmon. So it's a very holistic and integrated approach to land management. There was something I remember hearing that Salmon Safe isn't just about saving salmon, but it's the whole ecosystem around salmon and how the orcas actually in our region, they feed on the salmon. So if the salmon go away, the orcas go away. That's true. So salmon are an indicator species. If we can protect salmon, we can protect every species. It's critical to orca survival um, that we recover our salmon populations. Orcas, 92% of the orca diet is salmon. Uh, 82% of that 92% is um, sockeye, which is an endangered species. The other 10 is Chinook. And so um, if, if, if we don't save the salmon, we're, we're going to lose the orcas too. So it really is, it's the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. But in this case, it's the Puget Sound. 
Everything is connected. Everything is connected. And when you think about the Pacific Northwest, salmon fishing provides over 200,000 jobs. And in Washington, it's providing $14 billion to our state's economy. Not to mention, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're a tourist and you go to Pike Place Market, the first thing you're going to do is go to one of the fish stands. Fish and watch, right. You know, Bruce Springsteen was just here and caught a salmon from oh, the oh fishmongers, you know. <laughs> So it's and spiritually, you cannot divorce the the spiritual well-being and the financial well-being of indigenous people from salmon. A lot of our codes and and approaches to zoning are based on salmon and based on honoring our tribal treaty rights. So when I, I mean, interesting part of the the depth of our commitment to salmon is is serving indigenous people. I mean, when we think about the work that we do around salmon recovery and water quality, indigenous people are at the forefront of our concerns. Well, and I know the Duwamish tribe is reflected in what's going on with Superfund site at the Duwamish. And I know, um, you know, the whole social justice issue of tribes has been at the forefront of my thought process about how we honor this region and, you know, the, the ancestors that used to take care of it. I know that you've worked with tribes on some different levels, even have received an award for your work with, with tribes. What are some of the things that you've been helping tribes kind of recover? Yeah, you know, probably one of the—I mean, obviously the— the bioswales and looking at water under the bridge, so to speak, and, and um, taking the polluted stormwater off of bridges has been an important part. Uh, with Salmon Safe, of course, we've been able to, to focus on salmon recovery populations for tribes. I think um, I serve on the Puget Sound Partnership Ecosystems Board, and a lot of our work is really focused on how do we, I mean, recovering the ecosystem is supporting tribal treaty rights, and and that's a big part of it. So I'm actually the vice co-chair of the Ecosystems Coordination Board for Puget Sound Partnership, and I actually get to work with Dave Herrera, uh, who is a tribal leader from the Skokomish tribe, and a lot of our work is dedicated to making sure that the way of life of indigenous people is is preserved through salmon recovery and the recovery of Puget Sound. So what what exactly is the Puget Sound Partnership? Yeah, so the Puget Sound Partnership is um, a state-funded and and EPA-funded organization uh, that is focused on Puget Sound recovery and recovery of marine species. It is not a governing body, but it is a body that advises the government, um, both the feds as well as mostly the state. Um, And it works closely with a large collaboration of conservation districts and other government agencies uh, that are focused on Puget Sound recovery and, and salmon recovery. We are equivalent to uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in that sense. Okay. So Ch- uh, Chesapeake Bay is the largest estuary in the country, and Puget Sound is the second largest estuary in the country. And uh, Puget Sound Partnership began under Governor Christine Gregoire, and I 
think around 2005. Okay. And is is that a public-private partnership or is it all on the public side? Well, I would say it's a public-private partnership in that we have private entities that serve on the board as well as public, like the business community is represented. The shellfish community is, you know, the industries are represented. Mm -hmm. I happen to represent the Environmental Caucus. So the caucus is made up of 36 uh, environmental nonprofits within the state of Washington. And, hmm. and so I was appointed by the caucus to serve on the board. Okay. <laughs> so it's a really large collaboration of science, government, public sector, private sector, and NGOs coming together to solve these problems. Um, but the staff of the Puget Sound Partnership is funded by the state. Okay. Okay. And you say it's been around for about 20 years. Right? Yeah, close to 20 years. And of course, you know, probably in a nutshell, part of our work is really to uh, ensure as much as possible that we're, uh, as a state, committed to the Clean Water Act. Okay. We just celebrated last summer 50 years of the Clean Water Act. Yes, we did. And um, I do believe that there was a special visit from the staff of the EPA on a um, United States tour of significant sites that have made impacts on clean water. Ellen, do you want to talk about your... Yeah, thanks for <laughs> reminding me, Maren, because I got to, to meet some of the new leaders of the EPA. So the EPA absolutely loved our Bioswales projects in Fremont, and they kicked off the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act at the Bioswales. Oh, so it was a major that's kudo really, to the yes. work that our team did there, and it was quite the honor. So I, I got to speak at that event. But they, they did a tour around the country, and they kicked it off at the Bioswales in Fremont under the Aurora Bridge. What a feather in your cap. Yes. I, I'm sure you were very Thanks. proud. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to mention that. <laughs> it's good work. And it's it does put, I mean, our region is trying to find unique and innovative ways to do this work on big and small scales. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that came out of that work was this desire to go, okay, now that we have this beautiful version that really shows what we can do, how do we make this more affordable? Yes. What other things can we do? And that is where some of the work that we're, we're attempting to find the right money and be able to bring the right people together to be able to even do something as simple as a Gratix box under some bridges or under um, ramps where we what? can collect a Gratix box. What's a Gratix box? Ah, a Gratix box actually was uh, designed by two people at the port of Vancouver, Washington. They combined their names to come up with Gratix. Okay. But essentially Gratix box is a rain garden in a box. Oh, how convenient. And so it makes it much easier to install mm -hmm. and in small places that maybe you just don't have the land or the um, the ability to gain access to maintaining or constructing a bioswale to do that work. We've been coming up with ideas and talking with people about different ways that Gratix boxes might be seen as placemaking tools and mm. um, bring people together. Are they visible? Is this something that yeah. could be like well, they're visible Painted and visual. Or yep, something to reflect the 
the place, so another place-making tool perhaps. Yeah, um, we did one kind of just um, concept project for Fremont where we were looking at another portion of the bridge that needed to collect a little water closer to the troll itself. And again, very constrained space mm-hmm. that a Gratix box could really be a great great tool. So we kind of pictured a series of them coming down the hillside. And then next to the stairs there is a great opportunity to then maybe think about how could they the Gratix boxes be wrapped with interpretive elements. Uh-huh. And so so we started integrating those concepts together and came up with a concept just to help people imagine what could happen. And that's where we start. We start with how do we imagine something new? How do we get people to come along for a ride? How do we get them to contribute their ideas? And and then as this grows and gains steam and momentum and we find funding and can pull all these things together, then we'll have projects. But I think these will be probably a a very easy yes for a lot of communities to think about doing, you know, taking that first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's part of that placemaking idea is there's a lot of communities here that care about installing some sort of green stormwater infrastructure to improve um, the ecological function and, and the health of their own neighborhood. And the Gratix boxes are cost effective. And again, it's taking that pollution off of a roadway or um, elevate, off of elevated highway or a bridge and, and getting that water through the soils before it's dispersed into Puget Sound or a nearby lake or river. Um, so the Gratix boxes are actually a really great solution, say, for a neighborhood group um, that maybe doesn't have a lot of um, funding or or it's a, a humbler neighborhood that doesn't have the opportunity to raise a lot of funds. Like when we raised funds in Fremont, we had the support of some of the tech agencies. Right. And so what we're really wanting to do is, as Marn said, is make it accessible all over the city. Um, No matter what neighborhood you live in and no matter what your economic background is, how do we help solve this problem of stormwater at various scales and still reflect the culture and, and the identity of the neighborhood? You're listening to the Living Shelter Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, and I'm talking with Ellen Southerd and Maren Bjork of Sight Story about the confluence of water and social justice. Speaking of social justice and your work with the tribes, I'm curious, you mentioned a Indigenous award. What was that for? Yeah, that was quite the honor. So we shared some of the work we've been doing around the bridges and uh, our thoughts about placemaking. Uh, we entered a competition with the Museum of Native American History in in Arkansas, and the um, the selection committee was made up of indigenous people from various parts of the country, and they awarded us the in. Indigenuity Award Indigenuity. for, That's for looking word. at uh, how you would incorporate indigenous knowledge uh, in urban projects. So it was it was quite the honor. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. I didn't realize it was a national award. I I was thinking that it was something that was the whole thing was based here 
in the Northwest. Yeah, no, the Museum of Native American History is uh, in Rogers, Arkansas, and actually it's sponsored by um, the Walton Foundation from Walmart. Uh, but they uh, do a lot of work with um, with indigenous people and with various tribes, mostly in the, the Midwest and the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they brought together a, a, a selection committee of indigenous people to choose choose a project that they thought was ingenious, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so we showed them our concept work and just really what the what is possible. Well, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> it's inspirational. Thanks. Um, speaking of inspirational, I'd like to hear from each of you as to what you do for inspiration. What, what inspires you personally? to keep this work going. This is going to sound corny because it comes... My grad school work really hit the nail on the head for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it, the professor that I had was Nancy Roddle at the UW, and I worked... I did my thesis with her. And the concept of eco-revelatory design was woven throughout the entire three years I was there. And there was a very heavy... A lot of our studios had envi- or education centers or yeah, ecological um, museums involved mm-hmm. in them in some way. And that just really hit home because this idea that place has existed before us mm. and will exist after us really just captured me. And so... Finding ways, and I mentioned the word earlier, of being this detective, of being able to see place in a whole new way, that just eco-revelatory design is learning how to read a landscape so that you can understand something that was there before, knowing what questions to ask. And soil scientists are really good at like walking through a canyon and they can just tell you like the last millennia of what's been going on. (laughs) But how do we do that in an urban space, especially when things change so fast? You know, think about the dot-com and everything that changed in the um, South Lake Union area, how quickly that changed. And thinking then of the Denny Regrade and that there's no evidence of that to some degree anymore. And yet Denny Park was our first park in the city of Seattle. And it would have been towered by this hill that was there that made it kind of difficult to get around, but yet we found ways to build on it. But to find a way to communicate that to people over time, so even though they're just arriving and learning about what is Seattle today, that they have some sense of the changes that humans have made, but Mm -hmm. also what might have happened geologically, geomorphologically. And I think the when they were digging one of the parking lots for in South Lake Union, they were digging down pretty deep, and they found it was a Columbia woolly mammoth tusk. Oh my gosh! Do you remember this? No? I don't. I don't remember. I do. It's about ten years. Yeah. So of course, a lot of things stopped at the moment. They had mm-hmm. to dig it out, and you know, was there anything else in that area? The Burke Museum came in. I believe that they ended up taking the uh, tusk and um, doing a a mold of it, and and they have, they're studying it, but I believe they didn't find anything else. There was no other, so how did it get there? Was it brought by another human to that location? Did it come down in a glacial flow? What happened? Uh And so 
as we discover those things, I think it's the anthropological background I have, this kind of interest in time and space and how people impact place. I think I want those stories to be linked. And one of those crazy ideas I always had was that street signs um, at the intersection should be a timeline so that you could like, I don't know, maybe today with QR codes, you could just like put your phone up to it and you could learn something new about that location, about what might have been there. Oh, that's such years a cool ago. idea. So those are the kinds of crazy, just like, how do we get people to be curious and to stop and take a moment? to look around and ask questions. And that happens on habitat, that happens on buildings and energy efficiency and these, all these many topics. But I think that really is what keeps me grounded in this work is when people light up and get curious. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Ellen, how about you? I'm really inspired by social equity. I was raised in the New Jersey Pine Barrens in this incredible ecosystem and as a kid had access to clean water, clean air, beautiful landscapes and beautiful forests. And whether it's nature in the city or nature in a rural area, I just really, I want everybody to have what I had. Mm. And so, you know, I'm inspired by how we how we get to that place of some sort of connection to nature and to the planet, no matter how urbanized the site might be or a neighborhood might be, and how do we create this access to clean air and clean water for the people that live there? And I, I'm also really inspired. I've got I've gotten I've been an Oxfam America ambassador for 13 years, uh, and we work on climate resiliency issues uh, at a global scale. And so that that has been super inspirational for me. It's a humbling experience. It's a gratifying experience, but it's also a very empowering experience because I've gotten to meet people around the world who are all trying to solve the problem of climate change. And I believe fundamentally that nearly everyone wants to be part of the solution. And part of the work that we're doing at Site Story is really trying to create frameworks where everyone feels welcome to be part of the solution. So that's, that's what inspires me. I love hearing other people's inspirational stories. We can all inspire each other. So with climate change wrecking havoc, we all have have adjustments in our lives to to commit to, I believe. I'd love to hear from each of you before we go what you might suggest people do. You know, just maybe one thing that people might consider doing to become more resilient around the changes coming. Just one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Which That's one do hard. we pick? <laughs> pick the first one that then comes it's to be mind. Soil, because that will have ongoing benefit. Yeah. Build your soil. Build your soil. Get there. Get out there. Try not to till. Let the soil do its thing. Feed it. Be good to it. Appreciate it. Don't compact it. Okay. Plant trees. <laughs> Plant trees. Yeah. Plant trees. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's part of the soil. Yeah, can be, eventually. Drive less. Mm. Think about the salmon and think about that tire dust 
that's impacting their lives every time you get in the car. Um, And in that vein, I would say vote for transportation systems. I mean, that it goes hand in hand. And that's part of using your voice, right? And part of being part of the solution is we can make decisions for ourselves just by going to the voting booth and saying, I care about the transportation issue and therefore I'm I'm going to vote for a transportation system that isn't impacting salmon. Yes. Voting is one of the most important things that we can all do. Yeah. That's how we make our our voices heard. And it does matter. It does matter. It does make a difference. Absolutely. Where can people that are listening go to learn more about Sight Story and the work that you're doing? Well, you can go to our website, sitestorynw.com. That's S-I-T-E-S-T-O-R-Y-N-W.com. I will admit that we are very devoted to our projects and probably a little bit less devoted to how we promote ourselves, but we will (laughs) maybe by the time this is released, we'll have some, some of our new projects posted. This is motivating. But I also want to just encourage people, if you want to learn more about Puget Sound, you can go to the Puget Sound Partnerships webpage. Uh, they have a State of the Sound report where you can learn yeah. a lot more about what's happening here. You can go to salmonsafe.org to learn about how you can purchase products yourself and bring those into your home. Uh, I believe we gave you some links to some sites that we think are helpful. And the garden hotline. Oh, I mean, the garden I, hotline, yeah. yeah. I think it's another, um, a Telt Alliance has a garden hotline that is super helpful. Just find your way to spend more time outside and and find find the way that makes you happy. Yeah, that's a good point, especially since we talked about soil. Besides the garden hotline being a great uh, resource, you've got the master composter and uh, and sustainability steward sustainability program. steward program yeah. there that teaches people about soil, but also teaches people about behavior change, like how to sort your uh, your recyclables, your garbage, mm. your um, how to compost. So there's a lot of good information, and no matter what part of the country you're in, it's easy to get to the Seattle Tilth Alliance website. Mm-hmm. So you know all the things that they're applying to um, to instruct people in our region applies everywhere. So that's a great website. Well, thank you both for joining me today and for the work that you're doing and making a difference in our area with. It was great to have you here. Well, thanks, Terry. Thanks for all you do to educate people, too. I mean, that's a great podcast. That was Ellen Southerd and Maren Bjork of Sight Story, sharing stories about water and how making clean water available to all is impacting salmon habitat and underserved communities. I also want to thank everyone listening in and hope you'll tune in again for more great content and inspirational guests from the world of sustainable design. The Living Shelter Podcast is a project of Borden Vellum, a multidisciplinary design firm practicing architecture, interior design, and landscape architecture for residential, commercial, and civic projects. From our studio in Seattle, I'm your host, Terry Phelan. Take care, and we'll talk again soon.